Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs for an audience of entrepreneurs who are building their businesses and kind of listening to these stories for ideas, inspiration, and frankly, just for fun. Um, I find that the way that some people will listen to music, my audience listens to entrepreneur stories. It's not necessarily because they're going to go and take action immediately. It's because we just love to be surrounded by stories of business. And joining me today is someone who probably should have been an entrepreneur from an early age. He felt it at an early age. And from what I understand, he decided to go into law instead. And the thing about actually getting a job is sometimes you're on the inside finding problems with the world that nobody else notices, that people just accept. And as an entrepreneurial person, he decided eventually, I've got to go and take this on. And what he ended up doing, and I should say his name is Richard, maybe, he ended up recognizing that there's a problem with contracts, that it becomes in fact, if any of us have just even done one contract with someone, it becomes a pain in the neck to go and send the documents back and forth because what you do is you write the document in Word, you send it using HelloSign or DocuSign, it goes back to you where you want to make a small change, maybe they even just have a simple typo, so you correct it, but you got to kill the previous document that you sent over, send them over the new one, they're not sure if they're signing the new one or the old one, you get the point, right? Back and forth for one contract. Now, uh, if you're doing this multiple times, it's enough to... I was going to say drive you crazy, but that's your job. It's it's a painful thing, but that's your job. It's worse than the drive you crazy. It's that you could make mistakes. You could sign the wrong agreement. You could lose track of what's going on. All right. Anyway, that's what he discovered. And a solution that he created is called Juro. I invited him here to talk about how the business is doing and we can... Uh, and, and also to do the biography of the business. I love hearing how companies were started and how they were built and learning uh, what happened along the way. And we could do it thanks to two phenomenal sponsors. The first, if you're paying people, contractors, employees, anyone, you're going to want to know about Gusto and you're going to use my URL because they'll let you use it for free. It's gusto.com slash Mixergy. And the second, if you're looking to hire developers, you've got to talk to my friends over. And literally, they are my friends. I'm not just one of these people who says my friends. My friends over at lemon.io slash Mixergy. But I'll talk about those later. Richard, good to have you here, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, happy to talk. Give me the revenue. Tell me about how big the business is. Yeah, so I mean, we we just raised a Series B um, in December, and so we we've kind of gone from nothing uh, to something. That took a you know a fair amount of time. Um, I think as a company, it took us a good like three four years to hit just a million in in ARR and that kind of like magic sweet spot where you say maybe this is a, a thing like maybe we've got a business here, um, and we were able to grow our revenue two hundred percent during during last year. So we're now kind of entering this scale up phase. Um, Heading between a you know a Series B and a Series C, if you like the kind of the the VC letters, um, but ultimately taking us from like an early stage startup into something that is a little bit more advanced. Okay, and revenue wise, we're talking what two, three million roughly this year. We're, we're in single digit millions. We're more more than that, but um, yeah, we're we're on the on the way to ten. That's that's where where our next milestone is. Okay, and overall, how much did you raise? So we raised 23 million US for the Series B, um, okay. and in total, it's about 30, 32 million in total. Um, but you know, the, you have to understand the kind of early part of the company, uh, as we we're kind of grappling and trying to find product market fit, um, we actually didn't raise a ton of capital. So like our Series A, which we raised from Union Square Ventures was 5 million USD, which, um, you know, in 20, at least 2021, um, the Series A's were actually becoming quite a lot larger than that. Um, so yeah. we're really kind of for the first time actually like taking in really significant amounts of capital and, and scaling up. We talked before we got started about how you were a corporate lawyer before and you had this one situation where you had to have 50 NDAs, non-disclosure agreements signed in five days 
why did you need 50 of them? And then let's talk about what happened. Yeah, so I, I was a corporate lawyer, um, as you say. So, you know, what does that what does that mean? It's basically someone who deals with legal paperwork and contracts all day, every day. Um, so as, as part of my job in an M&A team, um, you'd sometimes have multiple bidders for a company. And I had this transaction, mm. which really kind of stuck in my mind, where we had 50 bidders for for a company. And my job is like the most junior attorney um, in, in, the, in the biz was to basically prepare the most simple document, which was an NDA. And, you know, we've all seen these documents. They tend to be a couple of pages. They're pretty cookie cutter. Um, mm -hmm. But when you have so many of them, um, you start to notice that some of the process things around contracts, which, you know, we all kind of think of as a little bit painful. Um, so, you know, loading them up in Microsoft Word and running some track changes and sharing them over email and you know, uploading them into HelloSign and, you know, storing them somewhere. That was kind of compounded by 50. So it made me feel that for people who actually really process contracts at scale, actually these manual processes don't make so much sense. And I remember just kind of sitting there and as I had sort of saved like the 500th like version of a file on my desktop, I began thinking to myself, well, look, you know, maybe I'm this kind of risk averse attorney and maybe this is the life I've chosen. But you know what? Actually, there's something here that really sucks. I know it sucks and it sucks so badly that maybe if we, we started a company, we can actually make this process uh, a little bit more efficient and and take away the kind of pain for people like me who are just sitting there late at night um, trying trying to deal with the process that they were they were given. So, yeah, that that's like was one of the sort of genesis moments for us. And still, you then went on to get an MBA before starting a company. Why? Why did you think an MBA was so important to you? I mean, great question. So like, you know, I spend a lot of time talking to ex-lawyers who want to become entrepreneurs and they're kind of like me, like they, they're mostly a nightmare in entrepreneurship terms, right? So they start thinking about things like, you know, there's this very linear path, which if, if I do well here, I can then do my MBA and I'll get business knowledge and then uh, I'll get a product role. And so a lot of my thinking was like, hey, there's this path to entrepreneurship and it's like a step-by-step -step path um and of course you know the reality is like things aren't really like that in entrepreneurship and you know now i'm a bit of a changed person i usually say to people just, just quit your farm and just start your business right because that's mm. how you're actually going to learn anything but you know the, the nice thing about it um and i'm finding this more and more now as the company kind of scales up and we're now like 75 people and we're going to be at like 130 by the end of this year it's actually like some of these things i learned on the mba and now sort of popping into my mind is, you know, how do we build like a structure for an organization? How mm. do we build like incentives? Um, and you know, I, I went to INSEAD in Paris where there's actually quite a lot of entrepreneurial types who I met and I, you know, got to meet some really interesting investors and got to network and it, it's all good stuff. But I think, you know, nothing actually beats the kind of cold, hard, staring at a blank screen and like wondering like how the hell you're going to actually like build this business. Um, so yeah, so it, it took me a little bit of time to, to, to realize that. You know what? I remember going to school and reading a book on entrepreneurship where the author said, people say that being a, that brain surgery is hard or being a brain surgeon is hard. He says, I don't want to minimize it, but at least there's a path to doing it. You know what school you need to go to. You know what you need to do to get good grades. You know how you get a job. There's a path because as an entrepreneur, there is no path. And in many ways, that's more difficult. So I get what you're saying. And I also now understand why you ended up going to LegalZoom for a short period of time. You probably wanted to see what is it like to build a product? What's it like to build a business? I want to get into Juro, but first, yeah. I heard how you got the job at LegalZoom. I feel like that gives me a sense of the spice that is Richard. Talk about how you did that. 
Well, I, re I remember it distinctly, right? So it was coming to the end of my MBA and it was the time where basically everyone is looking for a job, right? So there's kind of careers fairs and, you know, people start speaking with investment banks and consulting firms and things like that. And that's all, you know, fantastic. Um, and there's like some amazing jobs and opportunities out there. But if you want to do something unusual, like there isn't really like a careers fair for, you know, jobs in entrepreneurship. Um, and so I, I'd become super interested by that point in actually like, you know, legal technology companies, what they were doing, like why they were doing these things. And I came across this company, LegalZoom, which is, you know, um, in Austin, Texas, at least part, part of the companies in Austin, Texas. And, and uh, I started to think, wait a second, this is a company that is working on actually automating legal process. Uh, and it's doing it in a slightly different context to what I've seen. But like, isn't this incredible? Like, isn't this an amazing thing? Um, and I, I, th I thought to myself, well, I don't have any experience in startups or technology. So what am I going to do? So I ended up just like cold email outreaching to the, uh, the European CEO and saying, look, can I just do some work for you? I didn't really know what. Like, I'll do like anything you want. <laughs> um, I just, you know, I, I'm coming out of this thing. I didn't know anything about anything. Help me. And um, I met him in London and uh, he gave me a job um, working on some parts of the, the product. Um, and, and it kind of went from there and I had to prove myself and I worked like super hard and, you know, I spent a bit of time working with those guys. And I learned stuff, but I, I think, you know, you start to realize over time, you know, what kind of person you are when you're really up against it. And I was kind of up against it because How? I was never going to be a, cons well, I, you know, I mean, I was very lucky in many respects, but I was never going to be a good consultant or banker or lawyer. I don't think so. Um, I, I, you know, I'm not well behaved enough for that. Um, and I, I don't, I didn't, I didn't really have the discipline for that kind of work. Um, and so I found like increasingly that as an entrepreneur, as you said, there's no path, but you just have to aggressively find these angles and these opportunities. Um, and, you know, there's plenty of great entrepreneurs out there who just say, you know, I, I think, there's many examples of people say you just got to ask for these things and sometimes it feels uncomfortable it's like a british lawyer i mean british people are famously indirect right lawyers are famously risk averse but you gotta just like try something and ask um and i found often that you get you get rewarded for for taking those risks at legal zoom you mean you did yeah, i mean what's one thing that you well, asked for that you just had to beyond getting the job which is a good example of that was there one thing yeah. there that you did where you had to ask what was it yeah i mean I, I think like the thing that i realized when i was working there was that i was very interested in product and so i think in pivoting my my mm. job there into actually like working on some product related stuff yeah it's a bit of an ask right i mean i had no experience uh, i just knew the pain points Got i knew it. the customers a little bit so yeah so it, it's being it's being a bit a bit aggressive in asking and then um Know, and just taking a bit of a leap of faith, right? Um, I'm sure it wasn't, you know, okay. um, the best paid of the jobs of the class in my M MBA, but um, certainly it was one <laughs> of the best learning experiences. Okay. And then you say, I'm ready. I'm going to start a company. And your plan from what I read when I was preparing for this interview was you were going to, tell me if I'm wrong about this. You were going to contact people on late legal Zoom. You figured there would be some kind of funnel from that. Contact what, uh, general counsels. And if you contacted 100, five might talk to you, one might sign up, and then you repeat it for the next 100 and so on. Is that it? Yeah, yeah. So it's so on, link, on LinkedIn. Um, so I basically said to myself, look, I've got to be the first salesperson of this company, right? And some some startup founders yep. will say, like, I'm not going to do any sales. Um, I, I don't like that. Um, I'm going to get someone and do the sales. And I said to myself, 
like I don't really know anything about sales and I, I'm not sure I like it, but I've got to try it, right? Because if I don't know how to do it, I certainly can't hire anyone better than me because I won't know what to look for. So exactly right. I, I did your classic outreach like mistakes. So our SDRs at Juro like laugh at me to this day because every single mistake was made, like no personalization, like kind of long messages, not really a clear value story spray and pray, right? And I sent out like a hundred um, of these. The first hundred, there was zero. So not even a like go away message uh-huh. on LinkedIn. It was just zero response. Um, and then eventually I got through to one general counsel um, and, and managed to get a meeting. Um, and, and from that meeting, uh, we got a customer um, and, and that helped us hugely on the way to actually building a company. Because then that customer told you what they needed for their firm, you were able to create for them and then eventually take it out to others. Is that right? It, exactly. So this is, I mean, it, now, now this company is still our customer, very large, um, like post IPO company. But I basically went into that meeting and it's actually a kind of funny story. But um, the first thing the general counsel said to me was, you probably think I brought you into this meeting so you can sell your product. But actually, the main reason I wanted to talk to you is I'm hiring lawyers in my team. I'm looking for entrepreneurial lawyers. You seem like one of them, like you're interested in applying for a job. <laughs> so, you know, as, as like, a, I'm already quite like deflated from having been rejected by the first 100 people, but still being a good salesperson, I got out like my, you know, my, my laptop and I was like, well, we're building this thing. And like, okay. let me ask you a couple of questions, right? And I remember distinctly that... Um, I showed him like a couple of wireframes. I'm not sure we had actually written a single line of code in the product at this point. Showed him a couple of wireframes of like what we were building. And he was like, yeah, cool, like whatever. And then I just, I remember just like flipping it around and saying, look, you tell me, what, what's your biggest problem today? In the legal team, like what's the number one problem? He said, we're signing 500 contracts a month. Um, we're doing that using a combination of Microsoft Word templates, uh, DocuSign, we're storing them in Google Drive and we're tracking them in this manual like spreadsheet called a contracts register where I literally have someone on my team reading these contracts, unpicking them and creating a list of what they are, which is basically now like what our website says, right? So we read the first section of our website, basically like pretty much tells that story. Um, and we said, well, look, we're building this all-in-one contract automation platform. <laughs> so like our goal is get you out of those like four or five tools into one automated system. So basically he was uh, saying that he had the problem that you were building the solution for. Correct. Or was it, was it off at all? How did what he described differ it from was, what you had in mind for the original version? Well, it was pretty much identical because, you know, I'd had okay. that experience of dealing with these 50 NDAs. So I was using five tools to agree like every single contract. Um, okay. I think like what, what you learn from those customers is not so much at a high level what your problem is, because I think that was a line. It was more in the weeds, like what exactly is your team doing with these contracts? Down to the level of like, I'm opening Word, I'm saving a PDF on my desktop, I'm uploading the PDF into DocuSign. I want to know everything. And I actually spent a lot of time in their, in their office back then until I was basically ejected by security after like a few weeks, literally sitting next to the users. And they just thought I was crazy. I was like, show me what you do. Show me the status quo. Like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing when you're uploading this thing? Why, why are you doing that? Um, and then when we started building the solution, actually like writing code and sort of trying things out, I was like, right, use this. Like, tell me, like, is, what, is this good? Is this bad? How's this better? Uh... And we just got really obsessed with that basic like you know problem solution premise to try to get a really really good match just with one customer 
And the reckoning was, if we could get this right, maybe there are other companies out there who are experiencing similar pain. Who built it for you? you? We're now talking about the product. You went from sales to creation. Who built it? So I had a great co-founder, um, so Pavel, uh, who, you know, weirdly, we actually met at business school. I mean, we were the two most random people at the school, right? So I was a lawyer. That's pretty rare. He was a software engineer. Right? Everyone else was like management consultants and bankers and all these kind of experienced business people. I heard the two of you even, did you take a trip to Tanzania or something? Before you, before you even started the business together, I... not not Tanzania. No, no. I mean, we we. I mean, so he's from Latvia, um, and you know, I'm I'm British mm-hmm. national. Um, but um, yeah, mm-hmm. we 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 worked actually remotely for a long time. Um, so since inception, this was in 2016, we'd built a a fully like remote like company with two founders in two different locations um so actually you know as as kind of you know we've just been talking about working from home as this all kind of changed for us it's like pretty normal we've been like zooming for like five years um but yeah he he built the first the first iteration of the product and then we had like a couple of engineers who we hired really early who are still with us um so anton and valeri um and i remember just like we would sort of call them from the office of this first customer and say look we got a customer we haven't written any code um like we know they've got a problem like we're going to do some wireframing we're going to like figure this out but like let's just kind of build and you know, it's so hard, right? I'm, you know, you speak to tons of entrepreneurs, but I think just thinking about those early days where you just have no resource, there's just like no engineering team, just like a couple of people, somehow you like wrangle it into a product. And, you know, looking back, I, I, I'm just not sure how we, how we did it. Why do you think that the law firm was willing to take it when the product had flaws in it, considering they were using Microsoft Word, DocuSign? I mean, all these top tier products, they're not great, but they're bulletproof for what they do. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you know, I, I always have so much respect for companies that do that. And I, I always think they, they're going to be like an early adopter type customer. So this this was a this was a, a in-house legal team at a tech company. So you know, by our reckoning, they might be more likely to be an early adopter. But actually, it's quite inconsistent. We, we had some customers in the early stages from very traditional companies with like horrendous procurement processes and, you know, old school technologies who still were these visionaries and i think it really comes down to one thing which is like how burning is the pain uh-huh. so is if your hair is on fire right you'll pick up the nearest thing even if it's like a brick and you'll start right. like hitting your head put it out. <laughs> and, and so like i think that's basically what happened and i have so much respect for people who do that right but in return as the entrepreneur you got to give them value right so you've got to be shipping new features all the time and taking them on this journey yeah. to say look i know we don't have all of this stuff but it's coming and here it is and now you've got it and the next thing is coming in a couple of months but yeah, it boy, it's it's hard, right? I'd like to understand the hair on fire. That's more than just a hassle to use different software apps together and make them work. It's more like there's a real but before we do, let me just quickly say anyone out there who's looking to hire developers, go to lemon.io slash mixergy. When you do, they will within 24 hours find what they call on their website your startup's chosen one, meaning they're gonna find the perfect person. And if you're not happy, you don't have to hire from them. If you are, you can get started quickly. You have an inexpensive developer from Europe who can work with you remotely and really, if not amaze you, 
don't work with them. And if you use my URL, you're going to get a discount on their already low prices. Like I said, they get ple- they get people from Eastern Europe and other countries where they could get lower prices for great work from people who do not want to come to Silicon Valley or come to the US. They just want to be where they are. If you go to lemon.io slash Mixergy right now, you can get started. Like I said, 24 hours. Go check them out if you're hiring. So then what what is that hair on fire description? What What's the real problem that costs them? Yeah, and it, like I, I think these, I mean, you know, entrepreneurs generally um, start often, and you know, I've been guilty of this in the past, jumping ahead to the solution, right? You start coding because mm-hmm. you kind of think you get the problem, but actually, like the problem that you solve has, in my opinion, lots of layers to it, right? Um, so the first is like the purely personal problem layer, which I think of this as like, what's the status quo? So what do you do today? What are the very specific friction points, you know, for us downloading, uploading, all of these like little in the weeds things that annoy you. Um, and and and, th- and then you can kind of move to like, what's the promised land for you personally? I think like one layer abstracted from that is basically what's the personal impact, right? So I remember mm-hmm. when we were doing discovery for this in the early days, we start to hear, you know, really quite emotional stuff, right? So sometimes it was like, yeah, it's kind of annoying to like have to save stuff on my desktop. And sometimes it was like more abstract, like, hey, I worked till like midnight again last night and I mm. don't have enough time to see my children. Um, and it doesn't help that I'm dealing with so many of these contracts without any process. So we start to get into almost like an emotional kind of level of impact on the individual. And then you can start to look a little bit outward. So then, you know, what's the impact on the team? Well, the impact on the team is like there's no defined workflow in this team and the reputation in the team, let's say, mm. outside of you know the legal team is that this is just like a kind of random cost center that just does random stuff, right? And then you can look at the business impact, which is like maybe you're missing key risks in your contracts. Maybe you're auto-renewing. We had a customer auto-renew a $1 million like vendor agreement with Salesforce because they missed a date. <laughs> Right, they just missed the date because they had no tracking system, and so so, so I think like companies too. Oh my gosh, wow. all the time, all the time. Okay, it's and 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 the values are crazy, right? So so you build up this whole story. Like long story short, it's got to be painful for a person. It's got to be painful for a team, and it's got to be painful for the company. And if you know all of those things, you can paint this great solution and this great story, which says, "Hey, this solves problems for you." And you're going to be a hero in your team. And the team is going to have more impact. And because the team has more impact, the company is going to grow faster, whatever it may be. Okay. I had the sense that it was clearly just about money, that they'd screwed something up, like the example that you had about a contract that renewed for a million dollars. But it's more than that. It's also a lifestyle. It's also reputation. It's also just being more professional. All right. I see how you got them. How did you get the next client once you built the first Mm. product? Well, that's an easier thing to answer. So, so we basically um, went to like a very similar company, <laughs> and we said, like, we're building, you know, expertise in the on-demand, uh. you know, food delivery space. We think we get you, and like, of course, it's not enough to get a customer just to say we've got other customers in the space. But actually, like, when we got into the meeting, <laughs> we were like, so what's your problem? And then they said. Well, we agree a thousand contracts a month in Word and e- and DocuSign and email and Google Drive. It's a very manual process. And we go, look, okay, cool. But you know, here's what our solution is, and they go, well, that's the exact thing we need. Um, so yeah. go, going like one degree further was actually relatively straightforward. 
I think it became harder when we realized, well, we can't just be this contract automation platform for like on-demand businesses because that market's not big enough. So we had to kind of figure out other segments and, 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 and how, how our solution could fit in there. Were the first clients, were they these, I guess, you, you, as you said, on-demand services? I picture them being like the food delivery companies and those companies that have lots of contracts to work with. Is that right? Yes. it's a, So, and not just in food delivery, but like, and we still have lots of these customers. You can kind of see them on our website, but mm-hmm. kind of marketplace businesses. Um, so, you know, for example, we work with a, a big one listed in uh, in New York recently called Kazoo. It's like a used car marketplace. And it's just like high mm-hmm. volumes of contracts. Um, so a little bit like me with the 50 NDAs. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. your, your hair is not only on fire, but someone's pouring like gasoline on your hair, right? Because there's so much like coming yeah. in. Um, and that worked great for us as a as a first wedge. Okay, and then when you realize it's time to go beyond, we can't find enough. I'm surprised actually that you wouldn't be able to find enough of those marketplaces. It feels like everyone's a marketplace like that. My sponsor, <laughs> Lemon, uh, they are essentially a marketplace dealing with lots of developers, lots of clients, and then they match make and they have agreements that are different. It feels like there's so many. How'd you know that that wasn't going to be enough to sustain the business? Well, I mean, it sustained us for like quite a while, I think. I mean, you know, and you're, you're right that that isn't an entirely mm-hmm. small segment. Um, I, I think like the, you know, the, the way our business kind of emerged was actually, you know, to take your other sponsor, Gusto. I mean, SaaS businesses is now like a very major segment for us, right? Where we just like worked out that actually there's plenty of SaaS businesses that process lots of contracts and they, they do it and guess what? The same old like manual way. So, so, so this kind of like gentle expansion into these segments, I think the important thing for us is like, you don't want to go, you know, too broad, too fast. So we've had all kinds of demand from like, I don't know, large healthcare businesses, law firms, banks, financial services. And we've tried to be really disciplined in like turning them away because I've got, I've got no doubt we can give them like a okay solution, but I know yeah. that in these little wedges, we can really, really nail it. And, and we can be better than any product in the world for them. You mentioned SDRs. These are the people who now drum up business for you, who do what you are doing, as you say, poorly. They do it well. They contact people on LinkedIn and other platforms, start the conversation, yeah. transfer the sale over to or the the client, potential client over to a, to a salesperson who closed it. How did you develop that process? What was the next step after you making phone calls or sending email to where you are today? Help me walk, help me by walking me through that evolution. Yeah, so we we have like, basically three channels work for us. So two are inbound channels. So SEO, uh, which was basically just like me writing mm-hmm. blog posts. We now have a whole amazing team led by Tom that does that. Um, paid marketing, so paid search, um, again, led by Vadim. We now have a great team for it. And then outreach is still something that we do. It's still something that kind of yields results for us. Um, so, you know, your question, I think, is like, how do we go from like sending these like trashy messages on LinkedIn to like a highly mm-hmm. personalized, sophisticated thing? Um, and you know, for me, it was just hiring two two SDRs, right? That was the first step. Um, we still have both of; they're still actually both uh, uh, with us in the AEs now. So the but... very first step was after you making those initial con- points of contact. It was hiring people who are going to start conversations that led to you being the salesperson who closed them. Correct. So, that makes so, sense. so we brought, okay. we brought in two reps first, right? Okay, um, and. You know, because experimenting and being really disciplined and data-driven in like how you do outreach, it's a huge lift. And I would, by that stage, I was getting like very drawn between like selling stuff and being like our CS team and doing products and these kinds of things. And, but the, the issue is that like, you can't just buy it in, right? It's very hard at the early stages to say, let's just get two SDRs, 
ready built and they're going to take no process and like no insight and they're just going to turn it into revenue i think it was very much like a teaching process right so it was me articulating all of this stuff like talking through which personas do we go after what are their pain points what could be the value messages um and yeah and it took us time right it took us like quite a lot of time to iterate and find out what works and of course at the same time um you know the whole world of outreach was changing so we were kind of moving to a world where you know people have bought like 150 SaaS applications in their company and they're pretty tired of getting the same old Mm -hmm. messages and you know this big need to kind of like iterate and, and 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 innovate um and yeah so it's it was just trying some stuff, failing quite a lot, um, getting a lot of rejection. Um, I think for us, the big turning point was starting to be really measured and data-driven. So like not just guessing like what works, but actually having a, a really good structure for testing cadences and uh, and, uh, and For and, testing and what you were systems. sending out or what the SDRs were te- was sending out, testing and seeing what gets opened, what gets read, what gets responses, testing out different language based on that. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Down to a level, and you know, some of it is very specific. So, like, you know, maybe a subject line works better than another subject line. You can A/B test that. But I think a lot of it for us was actually just getting the the core message right. So, finding mm. someone, you know, at a time where they're likely to be experiencing the problem, um, and articulating really well what that problem is and what the solution is. Um, and yeah, it just it just takes time to iterate. Um, and you know, you learn along the way. But once you've cracked that, then yeah, it's optimizing stuff from that, right? And then I noticed that search engine traffic was important to you. I've noticed things like, I think I saw that you're ranking for something like Excel contract management issues. So I guess there are people who are using Excel to manage their their flow. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So you're exactly right. Um, I think, you know, when it comes to SDN, we have this amazing team that, that works on this now. I guess like what you're trying to do is you're trying to say, look, someone's got a pain point. Where are they going to go to find a solution? They're going to go to right. Google. Next question is like, what do they search for? Right. And there's all kinds of other things you might look at, search traffic and rankings and whatever. But first thing is like, uh, what would someone who has a pain point search for? And so we started to go, okay, well, look, there's, ma- there's search terms like, you know, contract management. I think we still like search result number one for that. That's all fine. But mm-hmm. like, you know, you, you, may not, you may not know what contract management or automation is, um, but you may be searching for an interim solution. And so exactly those examples have worked really well for us. Like, you know, search term, like how, how can you do redlining in Google Docs? And you get an answer from Jira saying, well, you can hack this together. Mm. Here's how, here's some value. It's not great. There's this other solution, which is Jira, and, and it can help you more. Um, same point on Excel, which is like, basically, there comes a point at which you can't be messing around with an Excel spreadsheet and you need tooling. Right. Um, and we, t- we try not to be too salesy in that. We try to actually like, you know, say, look, if you can solve it in this way, go and solve it. If you can't, you know, take, take a look at Jira. By the way, the name Juro, it's so good because four letters, E is easy to spell, J-U-R-O, has this connection to jurisprudence, to juros, to, I mean, to juries, to like the whole justice system. How much did it cost you to get a four-letter domain name? So the short answer is $13,000, which is very cheap. That's it? Um, <laughs> so, wow. I mean, it's actually... 
it's kind of a funny story. Like I, we, we decided to name the company Juro for exactly the reasons you mentioned. And the, the, the really curious thing is so Juro in Latin is the Latin root of all of those weird like legal words. It actually means mm-hmm. promise. So it means I promise. And I, it, it, we got really curious about this because, you know, when you think of a contract, right, it's such a formal thing. And there's all these kind of words that no one really understands. But at its core, it's just a promise between two people. And we thought this was kind of neat. We then thought exactly as you say, look, yeah, it's a four-letter domain name. This is great. Um, and we bought Juro.io, right? As a lot of startups do, we didn't have the budget for mm-hmm. Juro.com. Um, and, you know, one day I got this, like, outreach from a domain broker saying, you know, would I buy buy this domain for, like, I don't know, $300,000 or something like that, which is actually probably what it's worth. In fact, it's probably worth more than that. It's um, a good but deal, of course, yeah. We had no money, <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, so we ended up negotiating like very heavily, um, and it was owned by um, you know you can look it up on like the who is right who is the owner, but we found out there was it was owned by some some guy in a suburb of Las Vegas, Nevada, <laughs> um, and we were just like, what? Why do you own this domain? And it was one of these people who just owns like hundreds of thousands of domains. And anyway, long long story short, we managed we managed to kind of cut a deal, um, and and it's been great. You know, I think. You know, when it comes to brand, like we haven't invested very heavily in getting agencies to do all this stuff. We've done most brand stuff internally, but I think having a having a name that works is it, it is helpful. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, you've got to you've got to put your best foot forward in negotiating, right? What'd you do that helped you with the negotiations to get it from three hundred thousand to thirteen thousand? So I can't even really remember the specifics, but I do remember a lot of backwards and forwards, and I remember. I remember us just saying, you know, ultimately we do not have any more money mm. than this stuff. You can read about us in TechCrunch. We've raised like a tiny round. We don't have any money, but um, you know, it's 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 a little bit valuable to us. Um, you can get the the money today, or you can you can wait. And fortunately, the broker said, you know, we'll sell it. Nice. It's such a good domain name. Such a good domain name. Um, and sometimes you you're just lucky, right? I, I think that's true because really that domain name, because it's three letters, because it's so broad, should have gone for at least a hundred thousand, if not even half a million. That's such a good domain name. Um, and so you mentioned raising money. You know what? Let's come back to that in a moment. First, I'll say my second sponsor, as you mentioned, is Gusto. Are you familiar with Gusto, Richard? It seems like you are. I am. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. One of the things that I, I've heard about them forever and I've seen a lot of my friends use Gusto and then for some reason I didn't use them and then I had trouble with every freaking alternative and I don't know why I didn't just jump into Gusto. I think that they would always had extra features that seemed nice but in reality weren't useful and were distracting. It was a hassle to use. All I want to do is pay my people, contractors, employees, have somebody I can talk to when there's an issue and that's it. And Gusto does that beautifully. If you've listened to me for a while now, you know that I and many of the guests who I've uh, interviewed here have used Gusto for a long time. Well, not me for a long time. They've used them for a long time. I'm fairly new. I love it because it's easy. If you've got people who are local in your country, in your city, or even now internationally, whether they're contractors, employees, Gusto makes it easy to pay them, easy for them to receive payment, easy for them to control the experience, easy for them to see what's going on, easy for you to add benefits, easy for easy, 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 easy. In fact, I'm going to actually make it even easier for you to say yes to trying them because if you use my URL, you can try them right now for free. See what you think. Talk to their people. See how amazing they are. And if you want, great. If you don't, nothing to lose because it's going to be free at this URL. It's gusto.com slash Mixergy. J-U-S-T-O dot com slash Mixergy. So let's talk about funding. The original money, did you use any money or was it just you and Pavel just doing the work for free? And So 
so so when I, when I was a when I was a business school, um, I, I like a lot of my time is basically spent trying to claw back the fees I'd paid, right? So business school is like an expensive endeavor. All kind of you know higher education is, and I actually like won a little bit of money um, from a venture competition um, at uh, at INSEAD at my business school, and so we put that money into the business. Uh, it was like a few thousand, um, and I, I put some How of my much? savings like less put, than twenty five thousand. I think it was five thousand euros. I think it was. Um, okay. So not not much right. money, right? And then I put I think ten thousand GBP. So pounds um so we're talking about like maybe 20,000 20, bucks money. in yeah um okay. not not a huge amount but like you know it was significant mm-hmm. at the time um and then yeah we, we were equity funded really at the idea stage um so we took our first round pretty early uh which was from a accelerator called seed camp so it's kind of a european version of y combinator um and um they gave us like 70,000 euros it's like, like 100 just under 100k dollars so again we're not talking about big amounts of money here but this is more like you know feeding a couple of co-founders and a couple of engineers on ramen for mm-hmm. like a year um and 70, yeah that was back in 20- you could feed for a year two developers and you and your co-founder well, I, I didn't have children at the time, right? Okay. But um, we, yeah, we, we were pretty disciplined, I would say, back then. Um, and, you know, people talk about, you know, it's important to be hungry in entrepreneurship. I mean, we were literally yeah. hungry, right? Hey, talk um, to me about what you would eat, what life was like in that, in that period when you were hungry, hours, well, food, anything. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think you have like a couple of things. Like one is, you know, I, I don't get so much FOMO now, right? I, I feel like, you know, but but I, I definitely did. I, I'd certainly been um, you know I'd been very fortunate in my life, right? I'd had like a lot of great experience. I'd worked for good companies, been well paid, and whatever. And uh, you know I'd certainly coming out of business school. All my friends were going and working for like McKinsey and Bank of America and all these kind of companies, and seemingly yeah. like having this like amazing time. So like part of it is yeah, there's like a little bit of hardship because you've got no money. But there's also an existential question, which is like you know what if this thing doesn't work out? Like what if we fail? Like what are we gonna do? Are we gonna have get, gonna get jobs? So I remember most of it was actually like psychological to be honest um you know i think like now you have more financial dependencies and things you will i'm a little bit older now i'm 35 now um but you know i was in my late 20s and it was it was okay to be honest but certainly like stressful i know what you mean about that what happens next what if it doesn't work it could be so distracting that you can't be productive or it and i should even say it could be so helpful that it forces you to work did it do that for you too I think so. I mean, I, I think a lot of, I'm, I'm sure you have like a lot of people on your show who say this, right? But I think when you're up against the ropes, something that just uh-huh. something about those conditions forces some level of creativity. So I remember, you know, at the end of 2016, after we'd sort of burned through like 80% of the cash we had, we were definitely running out of money and needing to go and raise again. And I, I think some of our best work was done there in product terms, right? Which was just like, you know, this brute force and this discipline and this kind of working all hours to get it done something about those conditions leads to some creativity um how how did you you communicate that to the people who you're working with and to yourself and how did it get expressed were you working later hours were you asking for more I mean, I've tried to be like pretty transparent. I mean, I, you know, I, I take feedback from my team all the time, right? And some of it's great and some of it's okay. And some of it's like, you got to like sh- sharpen your game, right? But the thing I, I sort of consistently get good feedback on is transparency. And so we, we were quite radically, I think, transparent with the team at the time. Like, we don't have much money, right? So like, like here's the balance. Like, that's what we've got. So, you know, we've got to work together. And I think, you know, ultimately it scares some people, but people 
you know, if you if you're kind of like employee number four and five in a company, mm-hmm. you're basically an entrepreneur, right? You're taking mm-hmm. on so much risk there. But I think if you start treating the team as your co-founders, you know, whether it's two people or five people or twenty people, and you're really open with them about that. Um, I think it's a positive thing. And and I think ultimately it helps everyone to focus, right? And, you know, I'm sure you get millions of people talking about focus on this show as well, but, you know, there's focus and focus, right? There's focus, which is like, you know, for two hours a day, you're doing productive work and the rest of the day, there's just like other stuff that's happening. And then there's, yeah. we're going to do like a 10 hour sprint together to make this thing work. Mm. And, you know, when you have that pressure in those conditions, yeah, we, we did that and it, it helped. You know, Richard, I've got to tell you that I was a little worried about this interview because when before we got started, when we were just chatting, it felt like maybe you were sick. It felt like you were maybe low energy because I imagine it's the UK, so you're later in the day than we are. It's 11 my time. What time is it your time? So I'm not now, 4, 4 p.m. UK. Okay, 4 p.m. Yeah. So yeah. you'd had your day. I was just starting my day, and I said, oh, no, what's it going to be like? I even gave you an out. Do you want to record another time? And you said, no, it's going to be okay. And, dude, <laughs> as soon as we started talking, you came alive. I feel like the same thing happened to you, Ajuro. Having read your story, having now talked to you, I feel like there's a part of you, as I mentioned earlier, that wanted to be an entrepreneur that was latent for a big part of your life, and Juro just tapped it, and you were ready to step into that. Just like as soon as we hit record, you were ready to step into this conversation conversation like like some of the best people I talk to am I right who are you at your core and what did this bring out it's a really good question I mean so, so one I have been a little bit sick so <laughs> but even when I'm sick I get super excited about entrepreneurship and you yeah. know, I know I, I know there's a huge passion of yours and I think it is so exciting right and to, to answer your question I mean like I think ultimately I, I was a kind of not a great lawyer so I had, a, I had an amazing job I had amazing training I had all this stuff given to me but you know, when you ask yourself, like, what do you want to do and what do you want to be good at? Um, I think for most of the early part of my career, I was basically doing stuff which convention or parents or whatever said, this is the sensible thing to do. And I did it and I worked really hard. I'm a hard worker. I always have been. And I did that at, at my law firm. But, you know, it wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, and I think one of the reasons for that is that, you know, something something there's something entrepreneurial in me right and that entrepreneurial thing is this constant drive to change stuff really love change stuff i even did it mm-hmm. my law firm it's like you know say look hey let me build a process map for how we do m a deals i remember and i was uh, like what are you talking about process map like yeah. what is this thing and so you know i think now law firms have changed like quite a lot and there's like a lot of innovation happening um but the cool thing about it is actually entrepreneurs are kind of everywhere right so I, I just yeah. backed a guy. So I, I wrote my first angel investment recently. Uh-huh. A guy who worked at my law firm, and he was doing the thing to me that I did to the general counsel, our first customer, which he just sent me all these like LinkedIn messages. And I was going, oh my gosh, this guy's like a lawyer. <laughs> He's like me six years ago. I've never backed me six years ago. This guy sounds like a nightmare. And eventually I just gave in. I took a meeting with him and, and they built this incredible business. Um, it's It was doing super well. They've now just raised like a 20 million Series A. It's this amazing entrepreneur. And again, he was just like in the wrong, you know, situation yeah. or scenario. Yeah. And I just love these things, right? Because, you know, we, we you articulated super well earlier in this interview. We're talking about, you know, what was the problem we solved? And actually, like, that's all it is, really. It's like, do you really get the problem? Do you really get the solution? Or do you have this, like, relentless hunger and drive to solve it? And people do everywhere, whether in big businesses, small businesses, whether they're unemployed, like, wherever they are. So for me personally, yeah, definitely a journey. And I think everyone goes on this journey, right? Um, 
but it, it it's it's so rewarding because you know even now if we fail i still feel good about this stuff i still feel every day that i'm excited to go uh, and do my job well it seems like you're pretty freaking far from failure i see I'm, i mean i've gone in back in time both in the internet archive and news stories and it's just incredible to watch the growth and to watch the progress of the business um the website, as we said before, is juro.com for anyone who wants to go check it out. I want to thank the two sponsors who made this interview happen. Again, if you're hiring developers, go to lemon.io slash Mixergy. And if you've got people on board and you're looking to pay them with a software that they will love, go check out gusto.com slash Mixergy. Richard, it's so freaking great to talk to you. Thanks for being on here. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks.